Hey, this is Grunkle Stan, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. <laughs> The last thing they want to hear is, once upon a time, I wrote a book. Like, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. I'll draw pictures. I'll talk about it. But I can't read a Neil Gaiman book without hearing his voice in my head. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We all do bad British accents. (laughs) Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. And you can find us here right now in your ears. <laughs> kind of creepy when you put it like that. We're, we're watching you <laughs> as you listen. <laughs> we're inside your head. Yeah. That, see, if you're on the train going to your job, we're back there. <laughs> we're right behind you. Whispering into your ears. All right, so we're done being creepy, I guess. <laughs> never. We're never done being creepy, Justin. <laughs> we are always creepy. <laughs> thank you guys for clicking download. Thank you for coming back for another week, for another great interview. All our interviews are great. I always say yeah, that. But they're all fantastic. True. It's so yeah. much fun. You're not lying. <laughs> it's so much fun. And sometimes I listen back. Like the other day, I was listening to the Jonathan Frakes episode. I was on a plane and I was listening to it and I caught myself laughing out loud at some of the things he said <laughs> and everyone like looking at me like, what is this guy laughing about? And Did you stand up and say, everybody, I'm laughing at the Great yeah. Big Beautiful Podcast. Yeah. You should all go download it. <laughs> I think the flight attendant thought I was smiling at her though, which I... <laughs> no, no well, Jonathan got... Frakes says something funny. <laughs> <laughs> and if it got you better service as a result in it, there bonus. You go. There you go. <laughs> Using my good looks, right? Exactly. <laughs> So who are we talking to this week, Jamie? This week we're talking to Tony DiTerlizzi, who um, you probably have heard of if you have read any books that your kids probably have on their shelves. Um, <laughs> he is uh, he has written and illustrated uh, the Spiderwick Chronicles series of books, the uh, the Wandla trilogy. Um, he's done Kenny and the Dragon. Uh, he's just done a ton of great books. Um, that your kids probably love if you don't also love them. Um, he's just a great guy. He also recently came out with uh, a Star Wars picture book. Uh, it's called Star Wars, The Adventures of Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight. And what it is, it's a it's a picture book that he wrote, but is you know, illustrated using the iconic classic Ralph McQuarrie illustrations that were the conceptual um Conceptual pieces that he worked directly with George Lucas to create when they were making the movies way back with the original trilogy. So what they did is they took a lot of those um, original illustrations, used those as the pictures for the book, and uh, Tony wrote the words to retell the story of Luke Skywalker across the original trilogy. Um, It's phenomenal. It's fantastic, as are all of his books. Um, If you've never read him, I heartily, heartily recommend it. Go to the library, go to the bookstore, go to Amazon, pick up some of his books, just dive in. You will not be disappointed. And seriously, 
he is Tony is a serious creative mind. I mean, he's doing the writing and he's doing the illustrating, and he's yeah. kind of he's thinking from both perspectives, and it's just a fascinating conversation where he kind of dives into his, you know, just his how he works and his thoughts and I guess his creative processes. We always say, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna play that episode for you right now. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, and in doing a little bit of background research um, to just throw some questions together, I was intrigued to read um, that when you were a kid, you watched The Dark Crystal and then went off and created your own field guide to fantastic creatures. Like you were sort of inspired by that movie, which I totally get. Um, but I'm just curious, like how detailed was it? I mean, when you were a kid, like how much, how much, how much, um, did you really put into that book? I, I put quite a bit actually. I mean, it's about as detailed, I suppose, as a, as a 12 year old, uh, version of me can be. I, um, you know, that was a great time in the early 1980s. Um, you know, I, the, the films like the dark crystal were coming out, which, you know, up to that point, Jim Henson had done, you know, the Muppet shows, which right. were, you know, endearing and lovable and, but they were, you know, fleece with ping pong balls. So to see the puppets in a film like the dark crystal was, was mind blowing. Yeah. Um, and then you had, of course, Dungeons and Dragons was, was kind of sweeping the, the geek culture, uh, for the first time. And, um, I mean, even, um, uh, Rankin and Bass had done their animated version of the Hobbit and mm -hmm. it was just a really neat time to be, you know, into fantasy and stuff like that. And I was really discovering fantasy for the first time, um, during that period. And so, um, I had wanted to do a, um, a, a field guide to dragons and trolls and, 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 and goblins and creatures like that, partially inspired, I think, from, from films like The Dark Crystal and, and games like Dungeons and Dragons, but also because um, I grew up in uh, Florida. And, um, and in Florida, there's, if you've been down there before, uh, you know, it's it's filled with it's it's old people and lizards. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I you know, I was definitely an it's outdoorsy, accurate. It's accurate. I, I was definitely the outdoorsy kid who 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 would catch you know the giant foot long insects that would fly up to your porch light at night and <laughs> and and capture snakes and lizards and fish and and all that sorts of stuff. And, but I was always fascinated by those types of of animals, and I wanted to know more about them. So I would have these little pocket you know, Peterson field guides to, and I'd read about, Frank tried to figure out what it was that I caught and learn about it. Mm -hmm. And so it was this kind of natural meshing of my, my love of that kind of armchair naturalist scientific, uh, pseudoscientific approach and, and then just applying it, you know, yeah. like a, like a, like a screen, like a filter right on top of, of a yeah. fantasy world. Do you still have, do you still have that book? I do still have it. Yes, absolutely. I still have it. It's 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 it was um originally it would have been in my probably my trapper keeper yeah. from back then. Um but it's it was all drawn on, you know, leftover you know, lined three-ring binder paper <laughs> from school over the summer yeah. and drawn in like ballpoint pen and colored with markers and and because I'd watched many episodes of of Bugs Bunny and and uh, the Roadrunner, I therefore knew Latin. So all the, of course the you did. <laughs> all the dragons had names like you know biggest baddest dragoness you know that was it. 
so I, um, yeah, I kind of had an invented island where all these things kind of lived. And, um, you know, each day I, I, I would do a drawing or two and then I would write these kind of journal entries about being a scientist and kind of exploring those, um, the lands and what monsters I'd see and, and stuff. So it was kind of a strange stew of, of things that I loved. And uh, ultimately, it became the the kind of the seed, the genesis for the Spiderwick books. So it's safe to say that 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 experience and that desire to create this field guide to these dragons and fantastic creatures that was the genesis of Spiderwick. It really was. I mean, I I didn't know it at the time. Obviously, I I just I that the thing though that when I look back at it now, which kind of strikes me is that I you know I worked on that thing for the better part of a summer. So I did a couple drawings and wrote about it each day. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of summer, I'd filled this, you know, my trapper keeper with all mm-hmm. these drawings, which is not unlike, you know, making a book sure. now. Sure. You know, it's a very long process and it can take years. And uh, I'm amazed that I had that kind of tenacity to stick to it even then when there were so many other things I could have been doing. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, such is the life of a young nerd, I suppose. Well, that's exactly right. It's so easy to get caught up in your own imagination, especially when you're creating this entirely new world. I I get that. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I think that happens. Was it hard to sort of make that shift from when you were working on the Spiderwick, where the the story as a whole was, was large and expansive, but each book was relatively contained and relatively short, to something like the Wandla books, which were sprawling, and decidedly not very short. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they're each each book and its project, they're 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 different. Yeah. They each have a story unto themselves, the creation of those books. And so in the case of Spiderwick, I um, you know, it, it, as the mythology of that kind of started to form up about Arthur Spiderwick as this kind of John James Audubon who could see, you know, the fa- into the fairy world, as I was kind of building that, um, my editor and my wife uh, Angela, they were like, dude, no one's going to want to read a book about a hundred year old dude who, <laughs> who sees fairies. Like kids are not going to be into that. My you daughter just, would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I disagreed, but I, I got it. And I, I, but I also sometimes when that gauntlet's dropped, you're like, it's a, it's an interesting idea. And, and the idea though, of, of modern day kids finding it. So you don't lose the mythology you built, but that character then becomes part of the the whole the overarching setup of the whole thing and and when we realized well okay well let's make modern day kids find this book and the project just kept mm-hmm. growing it was getting bigger and bigger and more involved and and Holly Black had been helping me gather a lot of the folklore because she had a, a pretty extensive library of of old folklore she was already helping me do the research for the field guide and so it felt very natural to have her come on as the writer Right. And uh, and work together, and so Spiderwick then kind of just grows and becomes its own uh, uh, beast, for <laughs> to, yeah. to to use a pun. And so, what I liked about that was that it was a a story from the past coming forward in the future. So my mind immediately went in the other direction. Go, well, what about a story from the future that comes back to the past? And so, uh, when Spiderwick really starts getting up and running. I start immediately sketching and developing the ideas that would actually become Wandla, these characters, these future characters. And it was the same, the same concept of like, let's do a field guide, let's do all these stories. But like like Spiderwick, it, it kind of evolved and became its own 
its own story and life happened. You know, I mean, I, I turned 40 and my daughter was born and I, and I reevaluated the books that I was working on and the stories that I wanted to tell because I started to feel that, that sense of, um, of time, yeah. you know, how much time we have and what, what if you're going to spend it, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's absolutely right. I, I'm just, I'm curious though, when you were working on the book, because it was all three of them, because they were long, um, <laughs> did you ever, did you, did you ever get, um, like editorial pushback about the length or did they just sort of trust you and set you free? No, I didn't get a lot of pushback. I mean, we kind of had a max that we wanted to go to, um, with them. And that was primarily just cause I, I'm, I'm a big believer. I don't want the books to be real expensive. I want them to be as affordable as possible. And sure. of course, the more pages you add, the more time it takes, et cetera. Um, no, I mean, the, the common critique, it's, it's so funny. The common criticism we got with Spiderwick was that the books were too short. You know, mm -hmm. they're not long enough or all they did was take one book and make it, you know, yeah. five little books. And we were like, well, yeah, that's what we wanted. We yeah. wanted, we didn't want to get into the ring with, with longer format stories like Harry Potter that were big at the time when Spiderwick launched. We wanted our, 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 our books were more modeled after like, you know, Magic Treehouse, you know, yeah. or the Time Warp Trio. Those were the types of books that we were looking to put Spiderwick up against. Even the Lemony Snicket books at the time were much longer than what we were doing. Yeah. So when I got to Wandla, it was definitely a different, different story. And and I think when you look at the the thematic elements of what the story is conveying, sometimes that dictates the length as well. So, you know, Spiderwick definitely had some deep ones. It's a family going through divorce and, sure. and anger and, and how anger manifests within us and with these other characters, very deep and real issues. But Wandla was more worldly. It was dealing with much bigger issues. And so it felt natural. It felt right to make the story longer. And... Um, you know, I mean, the way kids and, and children consume books these days, it's a very different um, reader than Spiderwick. I mean, Spiderwick is probably second or third graders are reading Spiderwick. Wandla was aimed for more like a fifth, mm -hmm. you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. So it's, you're a reader at that point. Oh, it's yeah. different. Spiderwick can, can actually take a person who's a reluctant reader and possibly turn them into a reader. By the time you get to a book like Wanda, you're already a reader. Yeah. Yeah. Spiderwick are, they're great bridge books, you know, yeah. if, if that makes sense. They're great bridge books for either reluctant readers to fluent readers or just first books, you know, first real chapter books that, yeah. you know, kids can just dive into. Yeah. And I think they are the perfect length. I'm reading them to my daughter right now and she just adores them. How old um, is she? She's six. See, she's at the right. That's right. Yeah, there. I mean, she reads. She's reading the first Harry Potter too, so she reads on her own. But we do, you know, we re I read to her every night, and we just started. Um, we started Spiderwick recently, and we're in the middle of the second one right now. And it's just she won't let me stop. Like we just have to keep mm -hmm. going. So nice. That's yeah. awesome. My daughter actually took off with reading in kindergarten. She started just you know, like she was on chapter books by the end of kindergarten. And Holy I think cow! Grade beginning of grade two, she read the entire Harry Potter series. <laughs> so that's the time. She's insane. So <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's that is really impressive. I I uh, my daughter's a you know she's a very avid reader. She reads every night, and and we still try to take time to read together, even though she's in third grade now. Um, and I like that because I have these memories of my mom 
laying in bed and reading to me as a kid. And it's just powerful stuff. Those right. are such, just remember. So I, when I worked on Wandla, I was definitely envisioning these chapters that could be read at one night and, mm-hmm. and the idea of, of a parent possibly reading it so, with the yeah. daughter. Even, even with the length of your trilogy, which is 1500 pages, did you find there were story plot points, character development you had to leave out at all? Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't get it all in there. And, you know, it, it, you, but I want you, you kind of, as you go along, you know, you, you think, you know, what this book is about as a writer, you know, and you start writing it and you're, and it's tough when, and those first book you're building the world and Wandla was a tougher world to build than the Spiderwick world. Cause Spiderwick's a much easier, uh, pitch, right? It's like, it's our regular world, natural world, modern day. Guess what? There's fairies and trolls. You just can't see them, but we have devices that allow you to see them, right? Okay. Wandla is such a much more complicated uh, story to tell. And part of its um, of its world is, is part of the plot where you're slowly unraveling what happened mm-hmm. to the world um, and to put it in the present state that it's in in the story. So it was a lot trickier um, to lay that land. And so you, you have to be choosy about, all right, what is going to service the mystery of what's going on and also advance the, 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 the characters arcs. And so there was definitely some side stuff that was, that just didn't make it. Um, but they were minor things. It wasn't anything major. The big thematic elements came through. The thing that always surprises you at the end is like, you start to realize, oh, that's what this book is about. You think you know, yeah. and you go in with the best of intentions, but sometimes you get to the end and you go, oh, that's what this—that's what this story is about. And there were, go ahead. You know, I was—I'm I'm curious about that because you hear that a lot from from authors. You know, they say they just write, they sit down. I think Stephen King says this a lot. He just sits down and he writes, and the characters just do stuff on the page. They just tell him where they need to go and where the yeah. story needs to go. Yeah. And, you know, they say like, I, I don't, I, I write the words, but I'm just a funnel for what my characters tell me to say. And it's very, it's very deep. And I think if you're not a writer, you don't really understand that. But I know, I know also not every writer writes that way. So I'm just wondering, do you find that that's ever true? Do you ever sit down and find yourself surprised at what it is that you're writing? Like, huh, I didn't think this person would end up doing that. Absolutely. I've often likened it to you're a conduit from either your subconscious, uh, spiritual, if, if, if that's, uh, your belief that you are, and it's just coming out of you, you're yeah. just coming through you. I, when I look back at it now, and it's only, I mean, the last one, the book just came out a couple of years ago, there was a lot of, of change going on in my life. Uh, as I said, my daughter was born but my own family was going through, even though I'm older, my family was going through a separation and my parents were going through a divorce. And I think that still caused anxiety within me. And I think I was trying to work it out. So you have a, a, a midlife, a guy going through midlife, thinking, starting to really go, how do we fit in the, in the scheme of things? How does the kid who collected insects and went fishing and caught lizards in his backyard live in a 21st century world now where we are are you know so reliant upon technology and that huck finn existence that i had is seems so fleeting but how do i give it to my daughter right how do i find the balance so i don't make her a, a child out of time where she can't 
you know, I can make her have that existence. I could allow, I could, I could create a, a world where she's not involved with technology, but that's not going to do her any good. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've got to temper the, the constant allure of, of things, technology, technology, and let her appreciate the actual planet and the world that we live in. So all that dialogue's going through my head while I'm writing Wandla. And then um, my grandmother, my only grandmother that I knew, my dad's mom, uh, passed away while I was working on the final Wandla book. And it was definitely um, so impactful because it, it starts, I started asking questions about what do we leave behind? Uh, how, how do characters and stories and people become immortal? What are the, you know, what, what is it? And, and at the end, Wanla is about, you know, it's about actions and, and it's, and it's about, um, compassion. The whole entire trilogy is based on, Eva Nine is a, is, is her, her main driving thing is she's compassionate towards all living things. And that's a good thing and a bad thing for her. It gets her into trouble a lot of times too, but it's that. You know, I felt good that I was able to, that one was, I wanted to manifest her with that going through, but there were permutations and things that she encountered that I couldn't foresee that I think subconsciously my life was coming out through those words and pictures, if that makes any sense. It, it, make, it makes perfect sense. I mean, when you go back as the person who wrote those words and who lived those experiences, like if you, I don't know if you do go back and ever read any of your other, bo- your previous books, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, done, it's kind of, it's out. If, it's if they're done, they're yeah, gone. But I mean, yeah. if you ever have to go to a reading or in front of school sure. groups or something and you read a passage, like, can There's you only ever. one person in the world who is allowed to read their own work. And that's Neil Gaiman. Because yeah. <laughs> it's amazing writing and he has that awesome British accent. <laughs> I am not a big fan of reading my stuff. I just feel like it's going to put kids to sleep. Yeah. The last thing they want to hear is, once upon a time I wrote a book. <laughs> like, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. I'll draw pictures. I'll talk about it. But I can't a read fan. a Neil Gaiman book without hearing his voice in my head. So Yes. Yes. <laughs> we all do bad British accents. <laughs> yes. But, uh, back to uh, what... Can you read even a, a portion or a chapter of your book and divorce yourself from no, the knowledge of where that came from? Like, can you just read it as a story or do you can you all only see it for this is what I was going through in my life at that time? So that's how the story came to be in this way. It's a little bit of both. I mean, um, there's times I, I can maybe read a paragraph or so and go, oh, yeah, it's not bad. But usually it's horrible. I look at it and see all the flaws. Yeah. You know, that's with my art. That's with everything I do. I just see, sure. oh, I wish I could have fixed that. Oh, I, sh- I can't believe I didn't catch that. I mean, I try to surround myself with a, a team of people who um, are really good at, at, at helping me try to write the best story I can and create the best art I can. And I've got a couple of beta readers who were very instrumental um, on, on the Wanda books um, Jane Yolen's daughter, Heidi Stemple, and a friend, a very good friend, um, Steve Berman, who um, has a press of his own. And he he was one of Holly Black's old friends, and he was so great on Spiderwick. He he really cut to the chase, and he was a great reader. And um, I had a friend, Ari Burke, who uh, teaches mythology up at University of Central Michigan. He's worked with Brian Froud on a bunch of his books, and Ari was really good at at in helping me imbue that sense of, of mythology that was, that felt genuine and, and honest throughout the, um, 
series. In fact, it was Ari who came up with the the kind of the the reverb at the the final book of how the story of Eva Nine and her friends would impact mm-hmm. uh, others moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but another person that was influential, and I, I haven't really shared this much. He's thanked in the first book. Um, Guillermo del Toro read it very early on. He read, it, he read a very early draft, and um, I met with him. Um, geez, it had to been back in 2009, and he was actually getting ready to go um, work on uh, The Hobbit. He was getting ready to leave, and I, but I, I was able to go see him and spend the afternoon with him at, a, at his his house, which is, you know, I, I've seen what nerd heaven looks like. <laughs> I can only joke. imagine. It was every amazing toy and artwork and sculpture and, and, and from floor to ceiling of, of amazing things. And, and it was all the props from his movies, but then on top of it, it was, you know, original art by Ivan Durrell and, and, and Bernie Wrightson and, and yeah. sitting in the middle of it is, you know, is Guillermo. Yeah. <laughs> and he read, he read Wandla and it's so poignant when I think back to this stuff and I'm very fortunate that I've had people in my life like this and he said, you know, the reason I wanted to meet with you, Tony, is I wanted you to come and work on The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And he said, but I've read Wandla and I realized this is what you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And the original draft purposely subverted all the hero's journey expectations, the Joseph Campbell stuff sure. that, um, you know, if you're a well-read reader, you can see it coming from a mile away. I subverted a lot of those things in the first draft. And Guillermo's like, this is the book where you put those beats and you <laughs> want those beats in this story. It merits it. It wants it. It you can. It's a good enough story that you can have those beats in it. And so my challenge moving forward um, was to, to find inventive ways to keep some of those, those story beats in there, but hopefully not so blatantly obvious. Yeah. Um, which was good. So, I mean, for instance, your, your typical hero's journey, um, geez, I don't know how to do this. This is like a major spoiler for the first book, but um, it's been out for five years It's been out years for a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the mother robot perishes. Eva's mother perishes at the end of the first book. Well, most books, that would have happened at the beginning of the book, right? right. Um, Harry Potter is, is an orphan at the beginning of Harry Potter. Cinderella loses her parents at the beginning of Cinderella. I mean, it, we know Luke Skywalker loses Uncle Owen and Emperor in the first act of Star Wars. It's a very common uh, structure for a story. But again, this goes back to me thinking of my daughter being born. I'm like, I can't even imagine the impact that has on a kid when they are orphaned, when they lose their parents. And it made me go, wait a second, instead of mother perishing in the, in the first couple of chapters, what if she perishes at the end of the book? What if the whole thing leads up to that? And then how does that impact the Eva, the protagonist, moving forward? So it's just a simple sliding of, of this, again, this kind of beat, this trope, to a different section of the book. I felt made it a better story. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and if you, if you consider all three books as one story, which you should, um, it it does still make sense because it's still in quote unquote, your first act, you know, but it's, you're right in, in that first book, it makes it something different. It it makes it something that breaks out of the mold that you think that you're going to follow as a reader. Um, and it, it surprises you and it's, it's a good surprise in a way, um, because it, it's refreshing. So well, the challenge then is how do I make a, um, 
a couple things. How do I make a robot? You feel for this robot. You mm-hmm. care for this robot by the time that moment happens. And then the, the, the practical side of me is like, well, how do I justify a robot having emotion? Mm-hmm, and right. so that's when I came up with like, well, she's got, she's got cloned uh, human tissue inside of her. That's, that's how that, that whole thing works. So when Eva sees it, it's a little bit of a mystery. And then, of course, by the second book, it's completely explained how the mother units were, were created. And um, so, it, 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 you know, it felt like, all right, I've, I've answered. It's not like, you know, I would feel sad if R2-D2 died, I suppose, <laughs> like in an unrecoverable way. But you're still kind of like a part of you goes, but the, he's probably backed up somewhere. You could yeah. put that personality in a new R2 unit and voila, you have R2-D2 back. And and back to your your um, question earlier, um, there was a whole scene, a la uh, the Iron Giant, where Mother is is slowly reassembling herself at the end of the first book. But I felt I had then it would be a disservice to the readers that I had, I would feel like I manipulated them mm-hmm. by putting this, you know, quote Disney death in the in the end of the first book. And so I'm like, no. This is a big lesson for Eva. She has to learn this lesson. It's going to help her become a stronger character moving forward. Yeah. Um, moving sort of backwards, um, I, I know you were an executive producer on the Spiderwick film, um, but I also know that that carries can carry a lot of different definitions in Hollywood. So. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> How much involvement did you really have with the film? Uh, quite a bit, actually. I, I um, was involved from the early um, stages um, with the early uh, producers, and, and I met with them. And, and really, my um, my aim was to just gently remind them of what spoke to them about the the story. What you know, I, I knew inevitably that the film and the story was going to be be changed as it was adapted for film, and fully expected that, and and wanted that. Frankly, I mean. Um, I, I feel to me that the first Harry Potter, which was just slavish to the book mm-hmm. showed that you really need to kind of rejigger a story when you're going to adapt it into a three act structure uh, and, and essentially, you know, 90 pages of screenplay time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I sat down early on and, and were and talked with Mark, uh, Waters, who was the director and the then screenwriters and Holly and I had many conversations with the various screenwriters as it kind of moved through different takes and stuff as it was being developed. And, um, you know, there were, there were great conversations and, and I, in the end, I was very pleased and I, um, went up to industrial light and magic and, and, uh, visited with those folks. Why, why the effects were in pre-production then went over to Phil Tippett's, uh, Tippett studio and visited him while he was in pre-production. And then, they um, they filmed it up in Montreal, which is you know five hours, four or five hours north of me. So we went on set a few times and watched them work on it and stuff, and mostly tried to stay out of their way, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. But but had a great time, you know, nonetheless. And and I do remember um, seeing a rough cut of the film uh, out in L.A. and and offering my my thoughts to um, you know Mark Waters and Kathy Kennedy was was the, was brought in as a producer. Uh, right before the thing really got moving. And so I remember having conversations with, with Mark and Kathy about some story problems and things like that. And, and um, they were very open to listening to it. I think I had earned my cred by then by not being an Mm -hmm. annoying author, but more uh, a person who, who really just wanted to 
ensure that they could make a great film mm-hmm. and 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 help in all the ways that I could and that Holly could to help them uh, achieve that goal. Are you generally a fan of film adaptations? <sighs> I'm intrigued by them. I'm fascinated by them because when they work, boy do they work, right? Mm-hmm. And and let's let's be honest, that's how most of us consume stories anymore. It's through film. Um that so how many times have you seen a movie and went, I got to go get the book. I got to read this. I want to read the source material material. It's the same as the people who've read the book and went, this is nothing like the, the, like the, this film is nothing like the movie. And there's some excellent examples of it working magnificently. So you get a, a book like night at the museum, which probably no one, myself included read or owned. And then it becomes a magnificent film. Um, or Shrek, the first Shrek. I mean, I'm not sure how many people had read that book or owned that book. And then unfortunately, there are missteps when um, the, the film just doesn't seem to be able to capture the magic and the essence um, of the book. So I think like, I felt like the production of the Lemony Snicket um, m- books to film were beautiful. It was yeah. a beautiful movie, but it somehow missed the snarkiness in uh, in Daniel Handler's writing, and maybe that's because it just works so well with wordplay and and simple asides that you just would have been hard to try to translate into into film. Yeah, not every book should be a movie. Even, Amen. Even you are absolutely trying. right. Yes. <laughs> yes, you are right. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I I know a lot of, if not all, of your books are illustrated to some extent. Um, but how much sketching and conceptual artwork would you do just as a matter of course when you develop new characters and environments? A lot, a yeah. lot. And a lot of times they start out with um, sketches. Um, um, I've likened it to meeting a person for the first time. You don't really know them, um, but you get visual cues to kind of give you a sense of, of who this person or character may be. So I, I will often start with a... Um, a sketch of the character and a lot of little like captions and notes around them of, of personality traits or, or just little details about them. And then that evolves in, into more story, more, more, um, um, plot. And then at a certain point I stop drawing and sit down and, and write, and then I come back and then the, the writing has now evolved the character to another stage so that when I come back to draw them again, they've now morphed, they've changed. Um, to suit the story a little better because I have a better understanding of who they are. Yeah. Um, let's talk Star Wars. <laughs> He's wearing How a Skywalker long is this ring. Podcast? <laughs> let's talk <laughs> your Star Wars book first. <laughs> and, and for, um, for those listening at home, he is wearing a Skywalker Ranch hat too. So we might... <laughs> it's because I have horrible bed head, and it was uh, <laughs> the hats that fits my giant head. I have an unusually large Charlie Brown sized head. <laughs> Very few baseball caps fit, so I was very, very happy. I was, it was, it was, it was good uh, synchronicity when the Skywalker Ranch hat fit my giant. <laughs> when you were writing the Star Wars book, um, I'm sure it was a, despite the thrill of playing in that Star Wars sandbox, was there ever a concern that maybe this story has just been told too many times? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, that, but despite that, I, I did a search and I could not find a, just a straight up picture book of the original, uh, 
stories in one picture book form. There was the, the Star Wars storybook, right. which was was more like a photo, had lots yeah. of photographs and stills and stuff, but nothing that um, retold the original trilogy via a children's a noted children's book author, and then and then pairing it. Mm-hmm. Um, with Ralph's art, I couldn't find it. It may exist, but I, I certainly couldn't find it at the time. Um, so that, that intrigued me and Star Wars is such a huge part of, of who I am. It's such a integral part of, of my, um, stories. I, certainly Wanla is absolutely, in, uh, influenced by it, by my love of Star Wars, um, and Studio Ghibli and, and many other things. Um, so I was very honored to to be asked to to write this, and um, and it was a challenge. I, I tried not to think about it too much because I felt if I did, I would have I would have froze. I would have locked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yes, I, I definitely felt like, geez, there's a lot of Star Wars books out there. I don't know if this is gonna um, you know change the world or anything like that. But I I certainly took it as. Um, an amazing milestone, an acknowledgement of me as a storyteller sure. that I'd be asked to do this thing. And so, especially as a writer and not as an artist, which is how most people know me. Yeah. No, it must've been a, a huge honor it's, 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 like for exactly that reason. You're somebody, you know, you cut your teeth as an illustrator and that's sort of what you mm-hmm. became known for. And now I think it's equally, you're equally known as being both an artist and a, an author. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it must've been a, a great pleasure just to say, you know, we, we're going to pair your words with some of the most iconic images Star Wars has to offer. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. I, you're right. I mean, I, to, to, to be honest, I, it was something I certainly struggled with uh, during the Spiderwick years because most people uh, just assume that Holly wrote the books, and she did. I mean, at the end of the day, Holly was the one who sat down and wrote, you know, Once Upon a Time, Jared Grace. But there was so much plotting and planning that we did together in such a cooperative way that I often felt... Um, I just would get frustrated or bummed out that people just thought I was the person that drew the pictures, right. especially when I'd been living with this this concept for so many years. And Holly understood that completely, which is why we removed the written by and illustrated by credits on the Spiderwick books. Mm-hmm. Um, they just simply have both of our names. Um, so to to be acknowledged as a as a storyteller uh, via Lucasfilm, like the, you know, for yeah. me the <laughs> deity of storytellers was a was a was an incredible privilege. I um. And then the the reality, the task came of like, all right, how do you take three films and mash them down into <laughs> to thirty six pages, and um, and that's tough. And and you and I, so the fan part of me is going, I want to get as much Macquarie art in here as possible mm-hmm. to really showcase the the brilliance of his work, and um, and the 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 children's the kid lit creator in me is like, well, wait, we've got to pace this. We've got to tell this story with as much brevity as we can so that, you know, it doesn't just go on and on and on. Um, so there was a lot of challenge in there. Um, but what I really did is is I hadn't watched the films in a while. I want to say four or five years, actually. been a little while since I'd watched the films. So I simply sat down and just with pen and paper, I'm like, I'm going to write what I remember and what I love. If that whatever's bubbling to the surface has stuck with me. And that's the stuff I'm going to mm-hmm. use as my guiding uh, uh, beats to to this thing. And then find what Ralph has illustrated 
And though he illustrated a lot, there was much that he did not illustrate. And so then I knew, okay, well, the words now have to carry mm -hmm. this part of the story because we don't have an illustration of the Death Star exploding. So I need to write that, that this happened. Or we don't have an illustration of, well, there wasn't a lot of illustrations of Princess Leia, but uh, there, were, um, there were certainly major scenes that, that were missing of Obi-Wan Kenobi and, yeah. and Darth Vader fighting with their lightsabers. That wasn't there. So I had to make sure that that, gets told with the words. Um, so there were certainly challenges because the art was created for something entirely different. And unfortunately, um, you know, Ralph passed away, so I, I couldn't ring him up and ask him to create a new piece or two. Um, but I had an incredible archive, a, a testament to the amount of work that he did with George, which was many pieces I had never seen before. And I've got, you can see the shelves uh, behind me. I've got quite a few Star Wars books and art of books. And there were, uh, as I said, Ralph McQuarrie pieces I had never seen before. So when you were given the images, were you able to select what you wanted or did Disney and Lucasfilm have a good say in what was to be in the books? I had complete freedom. They sent me a, a PDF file of over 200, 200 images that he had created, um, some during the films. And then later I learned that some were created after the fact for uh, products and toys and things like that. Um, and then I flew out to the ranch and looked at the actual pieces through the archive to kind of get a sense of them. And it was then that I realized that they'd never really scanned the art ever. <laughs> <laughs> All the reproductions we'd seen were off um, large transparencies that had been shot maybe 10 years ago, which are good, but you're still two generations in printing. So you have the original, then a photograph, that photograph transparency is scanned and then printed in the book. And I'm like, well, you can eliminate that. Let's just scan the art, it's small yeah. enough. Yeah. So a lot of the art in the in that picture book was scanned directly from the physical artwork, which had never been done up to that point. Oh. Since you're both an artist and an author, um, and many of your books, even the ones that are very text heavy, still have illustrations in them, which are meant to be seen. I'm curious to know your thoughts about audiobooks. My daughter, just, just as a little bit of background, my daughter is obsessed with them. I've said this before on the show, but... Um, she's obsessed with them and she falls asleep to them every night after I read to her and then we just, her iPod, she's got a little iPod that's loaded up with a bunch of stories <laughs> and she just listens to book after book and she just, that's how she falls asleep every night. So it's like she's reading, but having somebody read to her. That's actually how she read, uh, the first Wandla, the search for Wandla. She actually, wow. she read, she listened to the audio version just because she, I think she was a little bit daunted by the size of the book. Sure. But now that she's read, you know, listened to it. Yeah. We actually picked up the book and it's sitting on her shelf waiting for her to sort of dive into it. Oh, that's um, awesome. But so I'm wondering, like, as an author, but also as somebody who intentionally adds illustrations to to pair with those words. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about the audiobook and the audio listening process? I'm I'm you know, I'm not a huge uh listener of audiobooks. I think because for me, I I I am so focused on listening to the words and it's different than like a song, which has a melody. Um, it's, it's, I don't listen to them as much as I used to. I used to commute. Um, when I was, when I was going to art school down in Florida, it was about an hour to 90 minute commute. And I used to listen to audiobooks going back and forth all the time because it was perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, but nowadays I don't listen to them. Um, I've loved all the renditions though that I've had and, and have had, um, say so in in the people who I've wanted to read them. Um, 
So for instance, um, it, it was definitely me and Holly who pushed hard to have Mark Hamill read, read the Spiderwick um, books because we knew Mark was so good at doing voices. Yeah. And, um, and I absolutely wanted uh, Terry uh, Hatcher to read the Wandla books. I was thrilled and over the moon at the, at the prospect of her doing it. And it was her first audio book. And I knew she had been uh, looking for the right project. And it was kind of strange. I, I knew I wanted to have a, a woman read Wandla, I think because at the core of that first book, it's about a, a mother and a daughter. Um, and I wanted it, uh, the person, uh, my dream was, could the person also be a parent? I just felt like they would understand the material that sure. much more. And, uh, and I thought Terry did a fantastic job. I mean, great job. The, the, and you know the nuts and bolts of that stuff is you're in a you're in a studio for for the better part of a week you know recording that stuff they don't get paid a lot of money I mean most audiobooks we do have people that download them they're used by libraries primarily so it's not like unless it's Harry Potter or Percy Jackson these huge books mm -hmm. it's not an incredibly lucrative uh, business so I'm always amazed and flattered when when you get you know celebrities essentially mm -hmm. reading these books. Um, and they do a hell of a great job too, which is always, I'm always blown away. I mean, I definitely am, am you know, yeah. very touched when I first heard, I remember they sent over, they, before the times of M MP3s and things like that. But when Mark had done like the first day of, of reading Spiderwick, they, they FedExed a CD to me. And I remember I just started crying. I just was like, I can't believe this guy's you know, reading our book, like this is unbelievable. That was the first time it really happened for me. Yeah. Um, I, so to I, answer, but to answer, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, but to answer your question, how do I feel about the visuals? You know, I, I, I'd hope that the words do their job. I think in a, in the case of to warn an audiobook, you're not going to do an audiobook of a picture book, right? Cause it'd right. be, you know, 10 minutes later, they're like the end. <laughs> not Whereas even. Yeah. Yeah. A chapter book is much longer the best um, chapter books I feel have art in them, but the art isn't necessary for you to comprehend and understand the story like it is for a picture book. A picture book is a completely symbiotic relationship between words and pictures. They need each other completely to fulfill the final um, story. Chapter books don't need that. The art helps. Um, in the case of Spiderwick, it breaks up the text in a very... Um, um, very tactful way where we're trying to break it up so that younger readers don't feel um, daunted or overwhelmed by page after page after page of, of words. There's lots of, of little oases of, of pictures to help them mm -hmm. comprehend and take a break from reading. Um, and then other books I, like Kenny and the Dragon have art, but not as much. Wandla has big two page spreads that kind of lead you into each chapter, but nothing more really. So um, it, I, I'd like to think that the words can stand on their own and, and that they can describe in such a way that you have a visual of what you think these things look like. Yeah. It's, 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 I've, I've mentioned this whole audiobook listening as she falls asleep. I've mentioned it a few times and I've talked to other people about it. And it does not seem to be that this is a normal <laughs> way that kids consume <laughs> books i think i, I mean I, and i don't know where she got it from i think maybe we just picked up a book one time in the library she listened to it and then just sort of fell in love with listening to it um but i think you know, your, your talk of you know the voices the voices are absolutely critical i mean she 
my daughter inherited a Beverly Cleary obsession from me. I mean, when I was a kid, if it was written by Beverly Cleary and it had Ramona on the cover, I, I would be reading it. That's probably yeah. what I had in my hand. Um, and she loves them now. And I think a lot of that has to do with the narrators because the audiobooks of most of Beverly Cleary's audiobooks are either Stockard Channing, who does the Ramona books, Fantastic. or it's Neil Patrick Harris, who does the Henry Huggins books. Also amazing. Yeah. And she, I remember I picked one up one time from the library and it was a Beverly Cleary book. I don't even remember which one it was, but it was not one of those two narrators. And for the longest time, she didn't want to listen to it because she, the voice is different. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, but the author is the same. same. <laughs> she didn't want to hear it because, I mean, now she's she's a little bit older and she can understand that. But about a year ago, when when I think this was, she just it was it was the voice that she was hearing putting her to bed that was most important. And then the story filtered in from there because she would just listen to it again and again and again. That's awesome. A couple things. One, one of my daughter's best friends also listens to audiobooks as she goes to sleep. That's like a really big thing with her. So it may not be as uncommon as you think. I don't know. Or, you know, we just they could, they could be the only two in the world. The only two, yeah. <laughs> my 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 daughter, uh, Sophia, she has an iPod and she loves having a song on loop when she goes to sleep. Just one song? One song. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I remember my, I'm, I'm the oldest of three and I do remember my younger sister listening to an album and it would come to the end. It was Xanadu. She loves Xanadu. And it would come to the end of Xanadu. She just pick up the needle and put it right at the beginning and it would just go over and over <laughs> Consequently, now I have a, a, a deep um, love for Xanadu because I think it reminds me of my childhood. But I, and I remember doing that as well with my favorite albums mm -hmm. and records, but never one song like it yeah. wasn't like you put a 45 on repeat, you know, how often and, does that one song change? I'm just curious. Um, it has changed more for a while. It has like so for actually the last couple of weeks, it was life on Mars. David well, Bowie's life on Mars. She cannot go wrong with that, right? <laughs> I, I could not sleep. I don't know if I could sleep. I mean, no, we're a very seventies classic rock and roll household. She's, she knows, she knows Elton John and the electric light orchestra and, and, and Billy Joel and abs. She's a huge fan of David Bowie. We're all quite devastated at the loss this week, but um, I don't know if I could listen to life on Mars on loop. Not exactly a lullaby. <laughs> it's not a lullaby. <laughs> now it's like a, she's got like a Charday. It's a, one of Charday's songs that's called uh, Mermaids, which is actually just an instrumental song. But she loves it, of course, because it's about a mermaid. Right. So she likes that one a lot. So that one's been on. But Olivia Newton-John's been on. Uh, <laughs> Katy Perry. Um, you know, so she, it changes from time to time. But boy, it can be glued. So I don't know if maybe there's just something in that, that. Maybe. Maybe that repetition is not different than the cadence of someone reading a story to you and falling asleep to that. I could certainly, it's probably not much different than falling asleep in front of the television. That's true. Um, secondly, uh, huge Beverly Cleary fans also. So I read, uh, it was a couple of years ago, we read all the Ramona um, books from uh, start to finish and um loved them she I, and i was really super psyched that she was so into those books because uh like you i remember reading them as a kid and i and i absolutely enjoyed yeah. the henry huggins books the ramona books i loved mouse and the motorcycle oh yeah. yeah um i've often used that one when i do my my presentations to schools and stuff and um we have some of the books here but not all of the books and um, so I went to the bookstore to get them, and they had been re-illustrated, and I was devastated. You mean uh, the not, covers? The, not only the covers, but the interior art as well. 
and it and it and it's not to disparage the the artist who had done them. They had done a fine job, but it it, it I wanted her to see the art. Yeah. That I saw. I mm-hmm. wanted I wanted that connection, and so I I um. I, I'm on I'm on the board for um, the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art here in Amherst, which is a fantastic museum that Eric Carl started, and they've had unbelievable exhibitions by the likes of Dr. Seuss and and Maurice Sendak and Chris Van Allsburg, et cetera. And um, so I I went had lunch with the director, and I and I mentioned I said, you, "Are you a big Beverly Cleary fan?" He was considerably older than me. He's like, "Oh my gosh, I loved him, and my <laughs> daughter loved him." And I said, "Well, I love him, and my daughter loves them." Mm-hmm. And um, what if we did, do you know who Lewis Darling is? And he's like, who? And I go, well, Lewis Darling is the artist who illustrated all of Beverly's books right out the gate, like from Henry Huggins, her first book published in 1950 until his untimely passing in 1970s um, with Ra- Runaway Ralph, the last, uh, the second of the Mouse and the Motorcycle books. And he's like, no, I, didn't, I, I know the guy's art, but I didn't know his name. And I said, well, all of his art's in one collection. It's at the... University of Minnesota and Beverly Cleary is turning 100. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe year. that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we, I am curating a show of all the original Beverly Cleary art uh, that'll be up this May. <gasps> I'm absolutely excited. How long is it going to be up? It'll be up from uh, May to, I think, November. I, I have to double check on that date. Um, and they probably have it up on the, uh, Eric Carl's website. Well, I absolutely know where I will be at some point between May and November. Yeah. That's something and, that I can't miss. Yeah. It's only like a five and a half hour drive for me. So <laughs> yeah, that's too, too bad. I've <laughs> always meant to go to the Eric Carl Museum, but I've never been in the area, but this is, a, this is the reason for me to now make it. To, to see the, the original, um, um, wow. sketches, oh, um, cool. um, original art from many of, of, um, her books and uh, ephemera. So in the archive were photographs of the boy who posed as Keith for Mouse and the Motorcycle mm-hmm. and, and other photographs. I tracked down, uh, we have letters, there's a lot of correspondence between Beverly and, and Lewis, uh, which is fascinating and, and, and a really a story unto itself. Um, and um, I've tracked down some other bits of, of of paraphernalia and stuff like that to have an exhibit. So we're, we're really, really excited about, about that. But I love that um, you and your daughter are fans as, yeah. as my daughter and I, you know, it's interesting about that. You know, you, you said it, I read Ramona. It didn't matter that she was a girl, right? Like it, Not it's at so, all. so strange how that's changed now. And, and so categorized and yeah. in this day and age. And um, I, I didn't care. It was just, it was like a great story. It was funny. And, and she did funny things and the other characters were hilarious. And that's and you didn't really care, but I feel like now we analyze these stories perhaps a bit too hard. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I didn't care. She was a tomboy, obviously, but yeah. I, I didn't care that she was a girl at all. I loved yeah. those books. And today, now, my daughter does. I mean, she loves the Henry Huggins and books just as much as the Ramona books, and she doesn't care that it's about a boy. You know? Yeah, so. yeah, it's very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Have, so I, yeah, tremendous fan of those books. Have Have you? Um, been in touch with Beverly as part of the you know the curation of that exhibit. I don't even know. Does she have all of her faculties? I mean, is she? I I don't know that. I've been in touch with her team at um, HarperCollins, who mm-hmm. are the publisher books, and um, we are corresponding, and we're going to get some questions, um, hopefully answered by her for the exhibit. Nice. But to, to truth, be, and and that would be great. Um, yeah. and, but I didn't want to bother her. To sure. be honest with you. And, and truth be told, there's so much amazing correspondence between her and Lewis during 
his their lifetime of working together that I mean, it's more for me just geeking out and getting oh, a chance yeah. to <laughs> send an email to Beverly Cleary. But otherwise, uh, I know exactly. She loved his art. She she said so many times during their correspondence. Oh, so um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. That's yeah, exciting. Very cool. Very very cool. <laughs> so we're gonna go back to a little bit to the what we were talking about in the previously. You worked with Holly Black on the Spiderwick series, and you recently worked with Mo Williams and Diva on Diva and Flea. So is That's it right. safe to assume you enjoy collaborations? That's a good, it's very good. Uh, yes, I do. I do. Um, and I think the key word here is collaboration. So normally the way um, books are published, you know, an author gets an idea and they go off and they write their, their manuscript and the manuscript is sent to the editor at the publisher and uh, where it's, you know, copy edited and so forth. And then the publisher generally finds the illustrator using an art director and um, the illustrator will come in and do their job. And more often than not, the author and illustrator do not correspond. They do not interact while the book is being made. Um, they often, if it's a high profile book, sometimes they won't see each other until after, you know, the book is released and, at, and on tour. Um, that was not how I like making books. <laughs> there was an old movie that came out. Um, it was a made for TV movie called Dreamer of Oz, and John Ritter played um, L. Frank Baum in it. And it was okay. I, I, I've not watched it in a long, long time. But it was on in a time where I was out of art school and yearning and dreaming of becoming a children's book uh, author and, and or illustrator. And there's a scene in there where they depict, um, and I have no idea if it's factual or completely fictitious, um, they're sitting at a kitchen table and at L. Frank Baum's house and Baum is uh, sitting there writing and W.W., the actor playing W.W. Denzel is sitting there sketching, you know, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and Dorothy and, and he's showing him the bomb and Baum's like, oh, you know, give her, give her ponytails and put her in a gingham dress. Okay. Okay. And he's changing it. And he's, you know, he's like, well, what if, you know, what if this, so there's this sense of like, I'm like, oh, so that's how they make the book. You know, they're, they're sitting at a table and they're energy is going back and forth and they're using all their tools. And so I, I approached my bookmaking with a similar um, style. So as I said, with Holly and I, there was a lot of collaboration. Um, the early sketches of, of Jared, Simon and Mallory were very uh, Americana Rockwellian kids with, with red hair and freckles. And, and Holly's like, Nope, I don't see him like that. I see them more as raven haired kids and in school uniforms. And I'm like, okay, okay. If that's what you want, let me give it a try. It's not what I, it wasn't my go-to. And therein lies what I love about a collaboration is that you create a thing that neither of the collaborators could have created on their own, but they create a third thing that is yeah. unique unto itself. So the text and perhaps the scenes that Holly put into Spiderwick wouldn't have necessarily come to her on her own and certainly some of the art that I created wasn't things that I created on, on my own. And the same can be true, um, can be said for my collaboration with Mo. And so, you know, Mo had spent some time in Paris. Uh, I think the original idea was to take a break, but mm -hmm. Mo, Mo Willems <laughs> cannot take a break. He is a busy, busy man and a fountain of amazing stories and books. And, um, he, he had written this story while he was over there and he, and he'd been wanting to illustrate it as well. And 
he called me and he said, I've been trying to draw these illustrations and I, 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 I really want them to look like your art. And my wife, Cher, said, listen, you know who draws like Tony DiGiolisi? Tony, <laughs> Tony DiGiolisi. <laughs> and so, so he gave me a call and, and he's like, I know you're busy, but would you look at this? And I said, well, you know, send it over. I'll, I'll take a look. And I, uh, I read it and, and it was that thing where I'm like, I would never write this type of story, but I love it. It's endearing. And I immediately grabbed a pencil and started going, well, I would draw the cat like this or the dog like that. And once I did that, I knew that that this was going to be uh, a book that I would work on with him. I think if I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And I've certainly read manuscripts by by amazing and well-known authors that I just have not felt it. And I felt it with this one. And so Mo had said, hey, listen, you know, you know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. Let's um, let's just, you know go and do your thing. And when I look and then, you know, show me sketches and maybe we each get a round of, of notes and, and it's kind of, you know, what you, what you get is what you get. And I'm like, or what you get and you, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And I was like, what the hell is that? I'm not making a book with you because that's what I want to do. I don't want to just <laughs> see both of our names on the cover. I want right. to dig in and like, I want to, I want to experience making a book with you like that, like your philosophy, my philosophy, that merging of our approaches and, and creating a, again, a third thing that neither of us would have created on our own. Mm -hmm. And I think he was a bit hesitant at that at first, but then we really got on uh, terrifically and we were able to sit and, and many lunches and having coffee and going over things and, and this and that. And, um, you know, cause Mo's a great, uh, He's a different artist than I am, but he certainly understands composition and, and arrangement and what to show and what not to show. And so absolutely, I'm going to to use that uh, in my illustration um, as guidance. And he knew that I'd written a lot of stuff. And so he absolutely wanted to to tap my brain as well, especially this being his first longer form story uh, versus the picture books that he's told. So we, we had a great time and, and we really enjoyed it. And, and I, I, I truthfully can say that we came out of the other side and we're like, well, that wasn't so bad. You know, that was pretty good, actually. That felt, that felt right. And I think the book in the end wins. It becomes richer when, when the two uh, creators, the two people making it, are reaching into their toolbox and using all the tools they have, not just a certain select amount yeah. of tools. Any talk about going back and doing another one, but with the roles reversed? <laughs> no, I haven't. Th I haven't thought about that at all. Honestly, it was <laughs> such a, it was such a a, a, a one-off, amazing little thing that I was like, oh, this was fun, and, and yeah, and look, people like it. That's great. We, you know, that's awesome to see that our enthusiasm spilled into readers. No, I haven't. I haven't thought about that. I, there's certainly other authors I would love to collaborate with um, in time. But it's so so for me, it's just a balance of like, all right, I want to go and write and illustrate some of my own stuff. All right. Now I'm, I've done that for a little bit. I'd love to experience making books with other people. I think that's it's, it's just such a fascinating thing. And, I, and I've got that luxury to be able to to do that. Yeah. I know we've had you for a long time and we're going to let you go. Let me ask you one, <laughs> one more question here. OK. And I'm sure you've met thousands of young readers during your career and um, including some who want to become writers or artists themselves. So I'm just curious, and this is probably a very well-rehearsed answer, but what advice do you give them? Uh, for, for, for kids. For kids who want to read and, and become illustrators? For, for kids or, who want to become a writer or an illustrator when they grow up. You know, guys, I, I, I was always a kid who loved to 
to draw and, and had fantastic stories in my imagination. And sometimes I'd write them down and sometimes I wouldn't, but so too did a lot of kids. I, I would, I would hazard that many of your listeners in elementary school had great ideas and liked to draw. Um, they probably had great ideas for stories and liked doing drawings. And somehow along the way, and I've seen this when I've gone and done school visits, if I'm in an elementary school and I go, who here likes to write and draw? You know, all the hands go up. The kids have amazing ideas for stories and, and have done amazing and, and ingenious and creative drawings. When I'm at a middle school and I ask the same question, about half the hands go up. If I'm in a high school, forget about it. It's like two weird dudes and one art chick raise their hand and that's <laughs> it. It somehow is gone. It's somehow, I don't know if it's discouraged, but mm -hmm. I don't know how much it's encouraged, yeah, especially right. the way right. most public schools are structured now with testing being such a, you can't test for that. You know, um, I am a product of parents who saw that potential in me and just encouraged, they just encouraged it. Mm -hmm. I'm a product of teachers along the way who saw that in me and encouraged it. And it wasn't a lot. It only took a few, but it was enough to toe the line to keep me kind of going where others um, might've been not as encouraged right. and, and may have stopped. So I, my, my advice isn't necessarily for, for, for kids, it's for the adults in their lives, whether they're their parents or their guardians or their grandparents or teachers or librarians or, or scoutmasters. Um, you know, if you, if you see that natural ability or the, the, there's a kid in your life that's a daydreamer that has wild and crazy ideas, you should encourage that because you don't know where those wild and crazy ideas are going to take them. You don't know what, what, how, how that will manifest years from now. Yeah. I think it's good to, to, to push it along and be like, well, maybe you should write these down or, or maybe you should make a movie of them, or maybe you should learn how a video game uses story and pictures in its narrative. There's so many ways that we consume story. You, one could argue that it's one of America's biggest exports is mm -hmm. story. Yeah. I think the new star Wars movie clearly shows yeah. that we love fantastic stories, especially when the movie it beat was another huge yeah. scientific science fiction, fantastic story in the shape of avatar. So I, we love these types of world. We love imaginative worlds. We love imaginative storytelling. And so um, I think there's a lot of great stories that have yet to be told absolutely in the minds and imaginations of, of children and it's our job as a, as responsible adults, as geek dads, mm -hmm. to encourage that. Fantastic. How's that for a final line? That's, that's, that's fantastic. Tony, thank you so much for, for talking with us. I know we, we went past the time we said we were going to, but thank okay. you so much. This has been great. I can go all day. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> I had a great time. That's it for this week's interview with Tony DiTrelizzi. And something that he was talking about there at the end um, about parents pushing creativity in their kids and recognizing it. Um, I had a thought about that, and I, th I think it's true what he's saying. I think so being creative and you know drawing and artistic, anything, anything creative, photography, it's always, not always, but a lot of the times it's looked at as like a, well, that's a fun hobby. 
right. know, not, not, not that you should be thinking when you're a kid about what you're going to do for the rest of your life as a career, but being an artist is more than just a career, more than the money in your bank account. It's, you know, getting your stories out and getting your creativity. Out. And for people that aren't like that, they don't understand. They yeah. don't, they don't see the need for it. They think, Oh, well that's a, you know, it's like with our podcast, I always get asked, well, when are you going to start making money? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing it for? You're not making any money. And exactly. it's not about that. <laughs> it's not about, and especially when they're, when you're a kid, I mean, not only should you not discourage any interest kids have, but why would you go, why would you be closing doors on mm-hmm. kids when they're six, eight, ten 10 years old? You know, I mean, who, like Tony said, who knows where this will ultimately lead? They could become an artist. They could become an author. They could become an engineer and just have an interest in art, you right. know. But why would you close a door by discouraging a child from doing something that he or she likes? No, and I've, I've never understood it. And I, I don't understand, you know, get a real job, go into engineering. And when the person obviously wants to do something creative, you know, right. just let them foster it. And you never know. Exactly. And yeah. Here, here. <laughs> anyway, boom. I'm not that I don't, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast will disagree with that anyway, but <laughs> I don't think so. But if you do yeah. disagree or if you agree with us, let us know. Yes. Send us a tweet. Send write, <laughs> send us a message on Facebook. Call us on our Skype line 301-825-5653 or just find us uh, the the GBB podcast everywhere else um, and let <laughs> us know what you think and uh, leave us an iTunes review. Tell us you like us. Tell us you don't like us. Tell us you love our author, our, our interviewees. Tell our interviewees that you like them. Tweet them and let them know. Jamie, I think you're going to win an award for best segue with that one. Was that a good segue? That was good. That's a hard sell. That's my hard sell segue That's right good. there. So reach out to us. We are on the, we are on Twitter at the GBB Podcast. We are on Facebook at the GBB Podcast. And I am Justin. I am at 140 Justin C. And I am Jamie. I am at the Roarbots. And we love to hear from you. Thanks for subscribing. Is that what you call it on? It's not what you call it, is it? Subscribing? It's 2016. We should probably know that by now, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Well, that's what I call it on YouTube. So that's what I'm calling it for our podcast. Thank you yes. for subscribing to our thank podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and thank you every week for your continued support. All right. We will be back next week. Have a good one. Have a good one. <laughs> this podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.